From Public Radio International, I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad. The Syrian civil war has gone on for seven years, amplified by the involvement of the United States, Turkey, Russia, and Iran. So now you've taken a fragile state that was already on fire, and you've dumped a bunch of gasoline on it. Now, President Trump says he wants out. But what would that mean for Syria and for the rest of the world? We don't live in the kind of world where we can just get in bed and pull the sheets over our heads and expect that that will solve the issues. Way too interconnected. I think the American people are engaged and care deeply about what happens, but they want the burden to be shared. Join us as we explore these questions next on America Abroad. First, this news. From Public Radio International, this is America Abroad, the show that brings global issues home. Countries like Syria, Yemen, and South Sudan are known as fragile states. They have weak governments, conflict, human rights abuses. Yemen has suffered almost three years of civil war. Airstrikes have been ongoing, water has been cut. One doctor in the local hospital says he fears a massacre. Fastest growing refugee crisis in the world. These problems tend to spill over borders and pose security threats to other countries in the region. And they can provide a home for extremist groups. ISIS has spread its wave of terror to a new front, Libya. How can the United States and the international community help stabilize these fragile states? Well, military might alone doesn't seem to work. Defeating the bad guys and then leaving is not going to be the answer. Stephen Hadley is a former national security advisor under President George W. Bush. He says that only a multi-pronged approach will work. Because if you don't address the underlying fragility of the state, the underlying grievances that cause people to be willing to rally to the terrorists and the like, you won't have stable peace going forward. You'll simply have a situation where at some point the terrorists come back. So security alone doesn't do it. Secondly, on the other extreme, you can't build another country. Other countries have to build themselves. Their people have to build it themselves. On today's program, we'll look at why some states become fragile and how that affects the people who live there. We'll examine the American approach to trying to help these countries become more stable. We're going to focus on Syria, which has been in civil war for more than seven years. That country has been destroyed, nearly half a million people killed. President Trump has said he wants the U.S. to leave the country, quote, very soon. Let the other people take care of it now. That comment was met with sharp criticism from both Democrats and Republicans, like South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham, who told Fox News that leaving Syria would be disastrous. It'd be the single worst decision the president could make. On today's program, we'll take a broader look at the U.S. involvement in Syria and other fragile states and examine what's gone right and where U.S. foreign policy is falling short. Most of the program will be a town hall discussion that took place this March. We want to do something. We feel terrible about what is going on, but we don't want to get really deeply engaged because we're afraid of you know, a repeat of the Iraq war or Vietnam and getting bogged down. And so we do just enough to make the situation worse without doing enough to make it better. Finally, we'll look at what happens when the U.S. and other democracies ignore fragile states and leave the rebuilding to authoritarian regimes like China. But first, what it's like to live in a fragile state 
to find yourself in the middle of a conflict zone and to be forced to flee your home. About three million Syrian refugees live in Turkey. Many of them have lost hope that Syrian President Bashar al-Assad will be toppled. They say the international community has failed them too many times. Some have managed to rebuild their lives in Turkey. All have suffered loss and upheaval. Fariba Banawa reports from Istanbul. In Aksaray, a neighborhood in Istanbul, you can smell the aroma of Syrian shawarma. Arabic language shop signs are common, and Syrian pastry shops line the streets. For the last seven years since the Syrian war began, Syrians have made Turkey their home. Sophia is a 35-year-old Syrian teacher finalizing her Turkish citizenship. She's considered lucky, one of 70,000 Syrians eligible to become a Turkish citizen. Meanwhile, according to Human Rights Watch, Turkey's deporting thousands of other asylum seekers back to Syria. Sophia decided to stay in Istanbul after she realized the revolution against Assad has pretty much failed. Sophia isn't her real name. She doesn't feel safe sharing her real name now that the Syrian regime may have defeated the opposition. Her family still lives in Aleppo, and she visits them. Sophia comes from an upper-middle-class Sunni Muslim background. The loud voices of dissent against the regime have turned into hushed criticism here. These past few months have wiped away many of the last vestiges of hope for those supporting the Syrian opposition. Assad's forces have captured one of the last opposition strongholds. Eastern Ghouta was bombed to submission. The city was under siege, aid was blockaded from reaching civilians. Meanwhile, Turkey's military just seized Afrin, Syria's Kurdish area. For many of the Syrians in Turkey who fought with or rooted for the opposition, the bloodshed is ending in death and destruction and no freedom. After the fall of Aleppo in 2016, people here were still speaking out, but now there are fears of being blacklisted. That could mean the regime could bar them from re-entering the country or target their family members still in Syria. Back in 2011, during the Arab Spring, Sophia never imagined it would come to this. She sympathized with the opposition and their push for a more democratic society. Nobody goes to do voting. We know that like, we will be with Assad and his father and his grandson, and, and this is something we cannot negotiate. Before the conflict began, Sophia was working with an aid organization trying to remain neutral. But when the uprising began in 2011, the regime responded with violent crackdowns. University students, women in a dorm near Sophia's house, became targets. And I still remember that day. It was very bad. I was in my house. And then they start to bomb the dorms. And it was like very close to my house. And we heard the women then they, they let them go out with their, you know, nightgowns and the women, they were crying and shouting and nobody dared to go outside to help. That, when I saw that day, I saw I cannot feel safe as a woman here. Sophia wanted to move to Turkey to study. Her father didn't want her to leave, but her mother supported her. In 2012, she traveled to Turkey without her family. Once in Istanbul, she became an English teacher in a Turkish school. She rented an apartment, learned Turkish, and began a new life. But the violence followed her to Istanbul. In January 2016, a Syrian suicide bomber connected to ISIS killed 11 tourists. In response, Sophia organized a trip to the tourist area for women. 
Tourism had dropped drastically after the attack. Her idea was to help Turkish shopkeepers recover lost business. But no one showed up. Sophia sometimes feels the sting of discrimination in Turkey. At the beginning, Turkish people, they were really feeling sympathy with us. And they were really helping us. But then, yeah, the Turkish people can, from time to time, give me a word that will hurt my feelings. Like, uh, Syrians, like, you know, they are getting our beaches dirty. I really like Turkey, but I'm not home. But Istanbul is the best choice for her now. Sophia has visited her family in Aleppo at least three times, but getting there is dangerous. For many Syrians in Turkey, even visiting home is no longer viable because they fear the Syrian government would detain them if they cross the border. This is the situation facing Bahadabar, a Syrian engineer who's active in the opposition. The 28-year-old has lost many friends and fears for his life. He volunteers with Istanbul and I, a nonprofit that helps other refugees here. Dabag, like others in Istanbul, concedes that the outlook is bleak, something he blames not on the will of the Syrian people, but on outside meddling from international actors like Russia, Iran, Turkey, and the U.S. He hopes that one day the Syrian people will be empowered to unite and topple Assad. Revolution is an idea, and you can never kill an idea. And we hope that one day we can do it in the right way. Uh, the wrong way was to depend on you know, uh, international aid, that, and that made us more divided because everyone was working on their own agenda. Dabar's refusal to kowtow to the regime is shared by Shaza Barakat, an educator visiting from Syria. She's an outspoken member of the opposition who's in constant danger when she's home in Syria. She says every foreign military power should leave the country. Syrians can eventually defeat Assad if he has no outside help. Berkat is here just for a week before returning to Idlib, the last bastion of the opposition. While some Syrians in Istanbul say there's still a role for the West in stabilizing the country, offering humanitarian aid and rebuilding, others like Berkat have lost all trust in the international community. Back in the Syrian restaurant, Sophia enjoys her smoked chicken. She says Syrian food gives her comfort. Sometimes I come with my friends who are like from all around the world and we try the Syrian food and I, they like it actually. For Sophia, losing the war is depressing, but life has to go on. She'll continue to visit her family whenever possible. Becoming Turkish won't make her less Syrian, she says. It just gives her a safety net in a volatile time. For America Abroad, this is Feri Benoa in Istanbul. There are no easy answers for Syrians today, either for refugees or for those still in Syria. But what can and should the United States and the West do to help them? And what does the situation in Syria reveal about broader American foreign policy? Are we entering a new period of isolationism? Are we giving up on nation building, on trying to spread democracy? Those were some of the key questions at a recent town hall we held in Washington at the United States Institute of Peace. The discussion happened before President Trump's comments about wanting to withdraw from Syria soon and his decision to freeze $200 million in aid. The town hall was moderated by Joshua Johnson, host of the WAMU program 1A.
Welcome to Foreign Policy and Fragile States in America Abroad Town Hall Discussion here at the U.S. Institute of Peace in Washington. Joining us on the panel today is Nancy Lindborg, the president of the U.S. Institute of Peace, which is hosting us today. On top of being president here, Nancy spent most of her career working in fragile and conflicted regions. Prior to joining the Institute, she served as the assistant administrator for the Bureau for Democracy, Conflict, and Humanitarian Assistance at USAID. Nancy, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Good to have you here. To your right from Nancy is Elon Goldenberg, Senior Fellow and Director of the Middle East Security Program at the Center for a New American Security. Previously, he worked in the State Department and the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for John Kerry on issues like the Israeli-Palestinian negotiations and ending the conflict in Syria. Elon, welcome. And to my left is Kimberly Kagan, the founder and president of the Institute for the Study of War. She's a military historian who's taught at Yale, Georgetown, and West Point. She's the author of numerous books and essays on foreign policy and is co-producer of The Surge, The Whole Story, an hour-long oral history and documentary film on the campaign in Iraq from 2007 to 2008. Welcome, Kimberly. Thank you. Let's welcome all of our panelists. Nancy Lindborg, let's start with you. What is a fragile state? So a fragile state is a state that either lacks the capacity to take care of its citizens, it's unable to provide basic security services, and or it can also be a state that is not considered legitimate by its own citizens, often is repressive, often is part of the problem. And a state that's fragile is less able to, to manage the inevitable shocks that come, either a natural disaster or a conflict that can't be managed. So it spirals into violent conflict. And this is the heart of what we're seeing with a lot of the increased unrest and crisis around the world, fragile states that can't manage the shocks of disaster and conflict. We definitely are going to talk more about Syria specifically, but broadly speaking, what are some of the main ways that states become fragile? Are there certain last straws that tend to recur over and over in fragile states? Well, I would say a continuous characteristic of fragile states is governments that are not inclusive of all parts of their citizenry. So whole groups are excluded from economic, political, security opportunities because of their ethnicity, religion, race, et cetera. That's probably the number one characteristic of a fragile state. Elon Goldenberg, how did Syria become a fragile state? Yeah, well, I think a lot of what Nancy talks about is what set the conditions, but there did need to be a spark. In the case of Syria, uh, the particular spark that then took us over the edge started really in what you might call the Arab Spring. Now I think we'd call it the Arab upheaval or basically these protests across the, the Middle East uh, that led not just to a state collapse in a place like Syria, but also Yemen, Iraq, which had actually already been struggling since the American invasion in 2003, Libya, uh, even Egypt to some extent. Um, and what you saw happen there was a few things. One is you saw this collapse of state authority uh, because institutions were so fragile. And you saw the conflict exacerbated primarily because of external actors coming in and making the situation worse. One of the things that happens when you have these fragile states is you create security vacuums, then everybody else that's around them 
uh, is worried about losing influence or sees an opportunity. So the Iranians suddenly have a close Syrian ally that's looking like they're teetering and they want to protect the situation. And so they start investing in various militias and groups on the ground and dumping weapons and money. The Saudis are trying to counter the Iranians, so they're dumping money and weapons. The Turks are worried about what's going on on the border. And so now you've taken a fragile state that was already on fire and you've dumped a bunch of gasoline on it. And that's been, I think, one of the biggest factors, at least in the case of Syria, of what's made the situation really exceptionally bad. Yeah, the proxy aspect of this constantly comes up in every conversation we have about Syria. We do have some clips to play from some people who are very, very close to the conflict, and one of them has to do with the proxy aspect of that. We'll get to that in just a second, but Kimberly Kagan, let me bring you in. The Trump administration has been advocating more hard power than, say, soft power, things like aid, assistance, diplomacy. It's advocated for very sharp cuts to the State Department, 37% in the president's first version of his first budget, and cuts to USAID. Step back from Syria for, for just a second. How similar or different is this from what America typically does? In a fragile state, how does America usually deal with the balance between using hard power and soft power? Hard power and soft power are both necessary in order to help a fragile state recover itself. And it is vitally important that the United States have a robust budget for its institutions like the State Department, like foreign aid. But it is also incredibly important to recognize conditions on the ground such as those that we see in Syria. The underlying violence and oppression of human beings is not part and parcel of a stable regime. And therefore, there is a degree of human security that we must attain before we actually begin trying to stabilize Syria. So just to make sure I, I follow where you're going, it sounds like you're saying that there's a place for both, maybe that the Trump administration's balance tends to be a little harder than in the past, but there's a role for hard power and soft power if they're in the right balance. I, I think there's a role for hard and soft power, but I wouldn't say that the Trump administration is actually pursuing a hard power strategy in Syria. In fact, if we look at the Trump administration's policy in Syria, we see extraordinary continuity with President Obama's policy in Syria. And I think neither had a robust enough humanitarian or uh, civil society or military approach. Nancy Limborg, let me put that question to you. The balance between hard power and soft power. The most important answer to that lies actually with a lot of our military personnel. And as you hear from retired four stars, what happens after the fight is as important what happens during the fight. And we need to be sure that the balance remains such that we can continue to have the development and diplomacy tools fully available, especially take Syria's neighbor, Iraq, where we just concluded yet another campaign. The temptation will be, now we should leave. But now is when some of the really, really important hard work happens for which you need those so-called soft tools. But I would say there's nothing soft about it in terms of the importance of rebuilding uh, not just the physical infrastructure, but the human inf infrastructure. As Kim said, the ways in which societies need to heal so they don't fall back into violence. Unfortunately, we just end up fighting these wars in, in cycles otherwise. We have a number of clips that we'd like to add to the conversation, including this one from Baha Dabuk, who is a Syrian refugee from Aleppo, now living in Istanbul. Let's listen. 
I know that we look like we are not organized and we don't have an organized leadership, but we have a very educated majority of people ready to come back and help the community, but we are being pushed away by all these militias. We need organized side to actually give us the help that we need. We don't need them to just support one group and throw out the others, maybe support a group that unifies all the groups. This is what we need. That was Baha Dabag, a Syrian refugee from Aleppo, now living in Istanbul. Ilan Goldenberg, Baha wants peace in Syria, says there is an entire class, an educated majority, as he puts it, that are ready to come back. You earlier mentioned the proxy war aspect of this, where Turkey has its peace, and Russia, and Iran, and the U.S., and all these competing views of what they want to see emerge from this war. How does that work? Yeah, at this point where we are is, and I might have advocated for something different three or four years ago, um, but I think at this point where we are is Syria is essentially divided into four or five different regions that are held by different actors. You have uh, in the southwest on the uh, Jordanian-Israeli border, some militia groups that the U.S. has supported for a long time. You have the central part of the country, which is really where the majority of the population and resources are, held by Assad, along with support from Russia and Iran. You have what I'd call an al-Qaeda safe haven in the northwest in Idlib province. Then you have a Turkish area also in the north where the Turks have basically hold territory on their border. And then you have this whole large swath that's really controlled by American-supported Kurdish groups. And a lot of the fighting at this point is happening where these different tectonic plates meet on these borders. And so if you're trying to get to a peace at this point, I'm not for splitting Syria apart. I don't think anybody wants to like redraw maps because that comes with its own set of violence and problems. But at least coming to short-term and eventually long-term political arrangements to stop the fighting at these seams and then trying to see if you can get some kind of a national arrangement is sort of how you would have to try to go about this at this point. But it's going to take years, and I'm not sure... Like, I'm not sure if we're really up for it or if anybody's up for it, but it's the best option I see right now. Before I come back to you, Kimberly, Nancy, I saw you perk up. Well, I just, that clip underscores one critical point, is that ultimately peace needs to happen through locally led action. And what we heard very powerfully there is the desire, the motivation, and the ability, as he noted, for the Syrian people to do that with the right kind of help. But they will ultimately be necessarily leading the future of their own country. Kimberly Kagan, is there a path to getting all of these proxies out of Syria and let it solve its issues of fragility by the will of the Syrian people alone? Syria has become a black hole into which regional and global powers fall. Um, So it is absolutely essential to disconnect Syria from those conflicts, but realistically, that's not going to happen anytime soon. We have watched that revolution, which had those civilian democratic aims of replacing the Assad regime and bringing reform, uh, changed into a violent and existential conflict. So what do we do? The first thing that we need to recognize is that different great powers have different objectives, and we, the United States, tend to want to find a common objective among all of the different powers, and we strike on something that we would think would be common, like fight ISIS, but we all put that at a different point in our prioritization list. It is more important to the United States than it is to Turkey. It is more important to Turkey than it is to the Assad regime. The Assad regime is 
not fighting ISIS, the Assad regime has every incentive actually to make sure that extremist groups perpetuate themselves inside of Syria so that outside powers can't come in and strengthen the opposition in and make it legitimate and democratic. Therefore, I think we really have to be eyes wide open about different actors' objectives. And we also need to recognize that we can't just fight ISIS alone. Actually need to start working now, creating conditions of stability so that over time there is hope for stabilization, a generation, not a year. You're listening to Kimberly Kagan, the founder and president of the Institute for the Study of War, Nancy Lindborg, the president of the United States Institute of Peace, and Elon Goldenberg, senior fellow from the Center for a New American Security. This is America Abroad's panel on foreign policy and fragile states here at the U.S. Institute of Peace. That's WAMU's Joshua Johnson hosting our town hall. While the live discussion took place this past March, the online conversation continues under the hashtag State Fragility. We're going to take a short break now, but when we come back, our panelists explore the potential endgame for the conflict in Syria. I'm Madeline Brand, and you're listening to America Abroad. You're listening to America Abroad. I'm Madeline Brand. On today's program, we're looking at the U.S. role in helping out fragile states, countries where the government is on the verge of collapse. We're primarily focusing on the situation in Syria, now in its eighth year of conflict. We'll return now to the town hall discussion we led in mid-March at the United States Institute of Peace. This was recorded before President Trump's call to leave the country, quote, very soon. The conversation featured Kimberly Kagan, founder and president of the Institute for the Study of War, Nancy Lindborg, the president of the United States Institute of Peace, and Ilan Goldenberg, senior fellow at the Center for a New American Security. Our moderator was Joshua Johnson, host of the WAMU program 1A. Nancy, let me come back to you. Let's play one more clip from Istanbul. This is from Barak Shukri and Abdul Rahman, both from Damascus. They're addressing something that's on the minds of a lot of Syrians right now, which is the violence that's been going on for seven years, most recently in a place called Eastern Ghouta, which is located just east of Damascus. Here are Barak and Abdul. In Ghouta, hundreds of people die, children have died, and nothing has done. We are asking people to take care of the Ghouta victims. It's being reported that aid is being delivered, but it's not true because the roads are blocked and no one can get in or out from the area. Please feel mercy and take care of them. Nancy, what's the moral obligation of the U.S. to help in a, in a fragile state? The United Nations has basically thrown its hands up and said... Apparently, y'all don't care about Eastern Ghouta because nothing we have said has made a ceasefire stick. The world seems to be content with letting these people die. What the U.S. has been doing has been providing ever-escalating packages of humanitarian assistance, including efforts to get it across the border. Unfortunately, and just tragically, what's going on in Eastern Ghouta right now is similar to what has been going on for the past seven years over and over again. The issue is, is less about the amount of humanitarian assistance, but rather what are the mechanisms for stopping the source of the need. 
Um, we're actually much better at responding to crises and providing assistance after a crisis has hit than we are at either preventing it or, in the case of Syria, the ability to stop it. It speaks both to the set of bad options that are available for stopping it, but also to the weakness of the international system, the usual tools and levers that we have through the UN to really enforce what everybody agreed on at the UN Security Council, but has been flagrantly and repeatedly ignored. I wonder also, Elon, what just for the average American we see in terms of our responsibility to do more in fragile states. I mean, Trump administration has taken a much more isolationist policy when it comes to foreign aid. That's kind of the sentiment at the heart of America first. I wonder where you see the human conversation in a developed nation like the US when looking at a fragile state like Syria and figuring out what the populace believes is the right way to help. Well, this is, I think, a problem. One thing I think we can do as the United States is lead. I mean, the world listens to us more than anybody else because we are the most powerful country in the world still. And so that means if you're going to encourage others to rebuild, you have to be at the forefront. You're going to ask others to throw a lot of money at the problem. you got to throw money at the problem. So this is, I think, one of the problems we've had with the current administration is this general desire to pull back on funding for all kinds of programs like this across the board. It's not just, well, we pull back and others will, will chip in and we'll just get the Gulf states to do a lot more, which is often what we do in the Middle East. We just assume that they're made out of money and they have a lot of oil so they can pay for everything. They watch what we do and they will invest based on what we invest because what they care about as much as they care about you know, helping people in, in a place like Syria, they care a lot about wielding influence in the United States and so they can see what our priorities are and then they will try to mirror those and that happens internationally. So when we pull back and do little, other than talk, others will do the same. Um, more broadly, I do think there's this challenge with a question like Syria in terms of our own population, which is what we've done. And this isn't just the Trump administration. This is also the Obama administration. We want to do something. We feel terrible about what is going on. But we don't want to get really deeply engaged because we're afraid of you know, a repeat of the Iraq war or Vietnam and getting bogged down. And so we do just enough to make the situation worse without doing enough to make it better. I mean, you know, if we had an option of just let Assad win and make this go as quickly as possible or very aggressively push him out. If we had chosen one of those two pathways early on, I think we would have been in a better position than doing just enough to support opposition without doing enough to really have it win, which just ends up perpetuating and makes us another one of the parties to the conflict of just dumping money and weapons and, and support into trying to reshape the situation. So. That's a really tough spot for any president to be in because an American president wants to help and wants to do the right thing, but also knows his or her population does not want to get stuck in a major conflict. Kimberly, you wanted to jump in. I sure do. Uh, first, here in the case of Syria, we have the opportunity to make a moral-based case and an interest-based case, and they align. What we're seeing in eastern Ghouta is indeed something that we have seen elsewhere during the war of a deliberate targeting of civilians in order to achieve war aims. That's what the Russians are doing. That's what Assad is doing. That is what Iran is doing. What we need to do is recognize that the reason why the recruitment of violent extremists from all around the world is so effective 
perspective is not because we have a narrative problem, but because we have a reality problem. Namely, there is no one protecting the population of Syria, and therefore the rallying cries that extremist organizations are launching to try to get people to mobilize for justice are falling on ears that are unfortunately made receptive by the abandonment of the international community. Nancy, in a report you co-authored for USIP on fragility, you wrote the following, quote, the temptation to hunker down and wait for this moment of disorder to pass is understandable, but short-sighted. We simply do not have that luxury. There is too much at stake for American interests, for the interests of our allies and partners, and for global peace and security, unquote. That's from a report that you co-authored for the U.S. Institute of Peace. Explain what you mean by that, particularly in light of what I was discussing with Elon, that a lot of Americans have said, it's nice that we've been known as the world policeman, but what about us? And also in light of the fact that nature abhors a vacuum. I assume if we don't step up, someone else will, but a lot of Americans are just tired. We've been playing world police for generations, and there are some Americans who are living pretty third world as it is. Like, can you just game this out for me, what hunkering down would actually mean, practically speaking? Sure. We don't live in the kind of world where we can just get in bed and pull the sheets over our heads and expect that that will solve the issues. Way too interconnected, too many threats that come up from places that we're not watching. Think Ebola coming from West Africa, clearly ISIS as it emerged. So from a security interest, we can't afford to hunker down. It's also not who we are as a people. I think the, the American people are very engaged and care deeply about what happens, but they want the burden to be shared. Nobody has cracked the code on how to prevent conflict from becoming so violent, but we can certainly do a better job of it. Do you think we haven't been paying enough attention, Nancy, because we don't have the resources, we don't have the intelligence, we don't have the information, or we just don't care? I think it's a combination of we haven't organized ourselves effectively to, to really crack the code of how to do this better. But why haven't we organized ourselves? I mean, does, does America as a government, as a body politic, actually care enough as a citizenry, as a nation, as a government to do that? We have the knowledge, but do we care enough? I, I think we do care enough. We care enough that we're putting a lot of funding into treating the, the crisis, the humanitarian crisis. But, it, you know, it's much harder to convince people to take action before something happens. It's the dog that didn't bark, right? But that's where we need to turn our attention and our investment. Human nature is to be preoccupied with the thing that blew up. But we need to think more about getting upstream of those problems. And it's an, org it's a, it's an organization and a funding challenge. Elon, go ahead. So I just want to echo exactly what Nancy said on these localized problems that end up affecting us and give you the specific example in Syria of how this has happened. Look, the conflict in Syria has led to massive refugee flow and massive extremist flow into Europe less to the United States, but it's impacted the politics in the United States, certainly. And you've had attacks in Paris, and you've had massive refugee flows into Germany. You can directly tie it to things like Brexit. You can tie it, quite frankly, to the election of right-wingers across Europe, sort of these populist movements, uh, and quite frankly, to the election of Donald Trump. And all these things, in my opinion, are weakening core things for basic American security that has been the basis of how we've governed the world order since 1945 uh, that has kept the world stable and kept us from new world wars and kept us from major conflicts. All of this, to some extent, can be tied back 
to what hap what's been happening in Syria for the last six or seven years. We are speaking to Kimberly Kagan, founder and president of the Institute for the Study of War, Ilan Goldenberg, senior fellow from the Center for a New American Security, and Nancy Lindborg, the president of the United States Institute of Peace. This is an America Abroad discussion on fragile states. I'm Joshua Johnson from 1A on NPR. Let's continue with audience questions. Yes, ma'am. Hi, my name is Maria Alejandra Silva. I work at the Washington office on Latin America, and I'm a student at GW. I feel like we haven't spent enough time talking about states that have come from the brink of failed statehood. Um, and I just want to get your opinion on what lessons we learned from our intervention in Colombia. Nancy, what about that? Lessons learned in Colombia. Colombia had a 50-year civil war that was just recently drawn partly to a close with the peace accord of last year. And that peace accord was very, very inclusive. And we know that when you have more than just the guys with the guns at the table, but you actually have victims of the conflict, women, people who were displaced, that you have a better chance of forging a deal that will be more enduring. We also learned that the US stayed engaged in Colombia across three administrations with significant investment across development, diplomacy, and defense, where there's a clear goal aligned across the various functions of our government with the military, our diplomats, and our development people having a shared goal of where it is we're heading. And we had greater impact. Finally, we had a partner. We had a partner in the government of Colombia across two of their administrations. Yes, ma'am. My name is Elena Ferguson. I'm a research consultant from the University of Denver. So my question, tying into Dubuque's clip, actually, and Elon's following comment on the separated regions of Syria, is are we seeing any indicators of a common grounds new development that ties any of these separate combative groups together to the point where we can see in a generation a fully unified movement? I wonder maybe, if Nancy, if we go back to some of what you said at the very beginning in terms of what causes states to become fragile, yeah. that lack of inclusiveness where people fall apart. Well, I think there's an interesting example next door to Syria in Iraq. You've got you know, the Kurds, the Sunnis, the Shias, and a lot of different minority groups. There is a sense that they'll move forward within the state confines, and they're demanding a more accountable, more inclusive government. So that's a shared ideology. And in particular, it's true for those who are under the age of 35. That's what I see emerging in Iraq, and I see that as a potential to emerge down the road in Syria. It is a lot about the various tools that, that Nancy talked about and, and Kim talked about, and we've all talked about in doing things on the ground. But there also does have to be a long-term political willingness in this country to actually support dealing with these problems. And that includes military. And if there's one thing that we've learned, I think, from Iraq experience in particular, it's that 150,000 troops doesn't work because there's just not political support for something like that here, long-term, in my opinion. It's not worth the cost and the effort. Um, and the American public isn't going to support it. But zero seems to also put us in some really bad places, as we saw with ISIS. And so maybe we need to be thinking about long term, you know, a few thousand troops in Syria, a few thousand troops in Iraq for the next 20 years to create, help create conditions that support all these other things is also a big part of the solution for this. You can't, it can't be just about the U.S. military, but we're not going to be able to do it without the U.S. military. I think we need to remember that, too. Elon Goldenberg, senior fellow from the Center for a New American Security, Kimberly Kagan, the founder and president of the Institute for the Study of War, and Nancy Lindborg, the president of the United States Institute of Peace. Nancy, Elon, Kimberly, thanks for talking to us. Thank you. Much appreciated. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Thanks,
That was Joshua Johnson, host of 1A, moderating our town hall discussion on U.S. policy and fragile states. When we come back, President Trump has called for pulling out of Syria, and he's frozen $200 million in aid. We look at what the consequence of that action may be, as China is already making its presence known. Certain countries contributed towards the destruction of Syria. Other countries like China are determined to contribute towards the rebuilding of Syria. If you're just tuning in and you want to catch all of this episode or check out our past episodes, you can subscribe to America Abroad on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Syria and Fragile States on America Abroad. I'm Madeline Brand. In recent years, leaders in fragile countries, especially those shunned by the West, have increasingly turned to China for help. Syria has made no secret that China, along with Iran and Russia, is favored to play a major role in the nation's reconstruction. At the United Nations, China and Russia have repeatedly voted against U.S.-supported sanctions. To understand why China is so interested in Syria, reporter Jocelyn Ford brings us this story from Beijing. Hunched over a tiny cell phone screen, the leader of China's first business delegation to war-torn Syria becomes emotional. Qin Yong is watching video clips of a day trip the delegation took to bombed-out Hems. The head of the China Arab Exchange Association talks about the ruthlessness and sadness of war. But when it comes to business opportunities, he brims with optimism. Qin, who goes by his Arabic name Karim, is confident Chinese companies will be the proverbial early bird that gets the worm. He explains why with a Chinese proverb. Roughly translates as wealth can be discovered by taking risks. Qin says a year ago that spirit prompted a small Chinese building materials company to ask him to put together a trade mission. Syria was in its seventh year of conflict, and Qin claims his was the very first international business group to visit Syria. A 15-minute bike ride across Beijing from Qin's office is the embassy district. At the end of a quiet tree-lined street, a tall armed policeman in an olive green uniform opens a heavy metal gate. My name is Imad Mustafa. I'm the ambassador of Syria to the People's Republic of China. Ambassador Imad Mustafa says the welcome mat is out for Chinese businesses, and he's issued hundreds of visas. Without mentioning the United States, which supports rebels opposed to his government, Mustafa pointedly adds, This is what we expect from China. Certain countries contributed towards the destruction of Syria. Other countries like China are determined to contribute towards the rebuilding of Syria. Ambassador Mustafa says China represents more than cash. It also provides an alternative vision for development. Syria does look to China as a model that can be uh, emulated. A model that is at odds with the democratic free market prescription promoted by the United States. It has been a model of uh, the state playing the role of an entrepreneur, helping certain sectors in the economy and the industry to develop, in which they also take care of the, the more vulnerable classes, and even the, the critics in the West uh, have grudgingly 
admitted that the Chinese model is a successful model. Though there is debate about exactly what the China model is and whether other societies can emulate it, there is broad consensus about what the model does not include. It does not require a specific form of government, and it is not about safeguarding human rights. Associate Professor Tang Xiaoyang at Tsinghua University is an expert on China's engagement with Africa. He says China's approach to development clashes with the so-called Washington Consensus, which promotes policies like privatizing state companies and reducing barriers to trade. One major problem is this principle. It may be true in one society, but it cannot be simply uh, replicated or transferred to other societies. So that's a major problem for the Washington Consensus. It may be true for U.S., for Europe, for West Europe, but then uh, if you apply it to developing countries, you often find a lot of problems. Tong says the West puts a bigger priority on building institutions that will govern responsibly. China puts a bigger priority on getting the economy up and running, no matter how. Commercial loans and infrastructure projects play an important role. A conflict often is caused by poverty. And if we engage with them, we like uh, try to do some business, actually it's a focus on the development instead of conflict. China's approach is akin to pulling on threads to unravel a piece of cloth. It doesn't matter where you start, just as long as the thread keeps unraveling. For example, Tong says, the starting point for commerce could be the tens of thousands of small traders China welcomes each year. Many are from war-torn countries in the Middle East and Africa. Lots of them head to the central city of Yiwu, which claims to be the world's largest wholesale market. Its gigantic malls host about 75,000 shops offering up items like doorknobs, light switches, and even Arabic books for Islamic schools. Among the businessmen is longtime Iwu resident Mudathir Ali from Sudan. On this day, he's visiting a gigantic warehouse to check on goods for his customers. The price is very cheap here. Ali arrived in China 12 years ago as a fresh college graduate. At the time, conflict was raging in Darfur. After several years of trading, he launched a shipping company that sends goods to Sudan and around the world. Today, Ali's company employs over 70 Chinese. At a spacious headquarters furnished with replicas of Ming Dynasty Chinese furniture, his staff clearly enjoys Ali's relaxed style of management. You must give also profit. <laughs> China is good to people like him, he says. Unlike the United States, it's easy to get a visa. Sudanese, they like China, you know, because they come easy, go easy, do business easy, all easy. But he says, well, he's glad China gives a chance to Sudanese entrepreneurs like him. He questions the billions of dollars of loans China's funneled to the corrupt government of his country. Sudan turned to Beijing after Washington imposed economic sanctions some 20 years ago due to horrific human rights abuses and links with terrorism. Today, China is Sudan's leading economic partner, and it controls a big part of Sudan's oil industry. But the billions of dollars from China don't reach the neediest, Ali says. He pulls up a picture on his phone of this school in his village. No, government don't care. Do you know how hospital, know how you see the school now? 
There are no chairs in the bear classroom. Ali says there is no road to his village and it has no water. Villagers are paying to drill their own well. The government minister takes the money, don't know anything. According to the anti-corruption NGO Transparency International, Sudan ranks among the world's five most corrupt nations. Sudan's president, Omar al-Bashir, is the first sitting president to be indicted by the International Criminal Court for crimes against humanity. Sudan is representative of the criticism China often faces for engaging with rogue regimes in return for natural resources. Venezuela is another case in point. It's currently in the midst of political turmoil and its worst economic crisis in modern times, despite China's loan of over $60 billion in return for oil. U.S. scholar Matthew Furchin runs a program on China and the developing world for the Carnegie Tsinghua Center in Beijing. He says China has compounded the nation's problems by adding to its already enormous debt. China has claimed for a very long time that its engagement with Venezuela uh, in terms of uh, 60-plus billion dollars in loans in return for, for oil sales underpins development, but Venezuela is in a free fall economically, politically, and socially. So uh, China is up against really difficult challenges in some of these cases where it says it's providing a different model. Millions of Venezuelans are struggling to survive among shortages of food and basic necessities. By some calculations, China is the world's second largest aid donor after the U.S., And Furchin's concerned it's not learning from the mistakes made either by the U.S. and other donors or by its own hand. In the case of Venezuela, right now, China has its head in the sand, is is unwilling to acknowledge that any problem exists. And if you don't acknowledge that a problem exists, you can't really respond to it. Nevertheless, there are signs China is preparing to become more strategic with its development aid. This year, Beijing announced it's forming a new International Development Cooperation Agency. Now, with the establishment of the International Cooperation Agency, Chinese foreign aid uh, will be utilized for great power diplomacy. That's Xie Yanmei, a former senior China analyst at the International Crisis Group. So there will be agenda attached to that, and there will be more strategic using of, of Chinese foreign aid. China may also edge further away from its long-standing policies of non-intervention and non-interference that stopped it from getting involved in local conflicts. China is sending more troops to United Nations peacekeeping missions in Africa. And last year, it opened its first overseas military base in Djibouti on the Horn of Africa. FM Ubi, who has published widely on China, Africa and security, hopes China will eventually play a more active role in conflict resolution. You cannot just go do business as usual, make money, get resources without intervening and trying to make sure that these countries live in in peace. Ubi of the Nigerian Institute of International Affairs notes China often says there cannot be peace without development. But he says there also cannot be development without peace. And this, he says, is something China has yet to come to grips with. For America Abroad, this is Jocelyn Ford. With China's growing interest in investing and engaging in fragile states, it's increasingly poised to step in whenever the United States and other Western countries pull back. You need all the instruments of national power to help and assist. Former National Security Advisor Stephen Hadley. The military can't do these things alone. In Syria, it may not even be the U.S. military soon. 
President Trump wants to withdraw American troops. Whether that will actually happen is unclear. But what is clear is that there isn't a lot of popular support for nation building, either in Syria or anywhere else. And when a vacuum is created, it's anyone's guess how that vacuum will be filled. This Hour of America Abroad was written and edited by Rob Sachs and produced by Shoshish Mulevitz. Audio engineering support was provided by Flan Williams, Bill Vaughn, and Phil Richards at KCRW. Our theme music is by Nolan Schneider. Special thanks to the United States Institute of Peace for hosting our town hall and to Joshua Johnson and our partners at 1A at WAMU. You can hear past programs by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes or by visiting our website at PRI.org. I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad from Public Radio International. Support for this show is provided by Public Radio International stations and listeners like you. PRI, Public Radio International.